Testament intercession is completely different than Old Testament intercession. And it's amazing how people don't know that. And because of it, people are begging God and saying, repent, turn from your fierce wrath. They're telling God to spare America. Don't pour out your judgment. They're pleading with God. And that is completely a slap in the face of Jesus. In the New Testament, let me just start with this. I'm not going to teach on it, maybe. But let me just start with this over here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's talking about Jesus and how in verse chapter two, that you make prayers, supplications, intercession, giving of thanks for all men everywhere. Verse two for Kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life and all godliness and honesty for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This verse says there's only one God and there's only one mediator. Did you know that Moses was called a mediator in Galatians chapter three, that the law was given and ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator? It called Moses a mediator. And so Moses, what a mediator is, is a person who stands in between two parties that are at odds with each other and you try and reconcile and bring them back into harmony. Moses stood between God and man. And in Exodus chapter 32, he said, repent, O God of your fierce wrath and turn from this. A man told God to repent. And what's even more amazing is that it says, and I think verse 14, God repented. (laughs) Moses stood and said, turn from your fierce wrath. And then Abraham stood between God and man. And he says, God, if there were 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you still pour out your wrath? Even if there were 50 and he said, no, if I could find 50, I wouldn't do it. And he says, how about if there was 45? How about if there's 40? How about if there's 30? How about if there's 20? How about if there's 10? And he finally quit. But here's Abraham twisting God's arm and saying, you wouldn't do something like this, man. The ungodly are going to hear of this. And they'll, and God repented and God responded because Abram was a, an intercessor, a mediator between God and man. And you will use things like that. And then they turn over to numbers chapter 16 where God got so angry, he was going to kill all of the people. And Aaron ran and stood in between the people who had died from the plague. And he had an, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? A censer of incense, which symbolized prayer and intercession. And he stood between the people that had died under the wrath of God and the people that hadn't yet been affected. And when the plague came to that prayer and intercession, it stopped and it saved the other people. And people use these as examples of way that we're supposed to pray. And yet in the new Testament, there's only one intercessor. There's only one mediator and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you to pray the way that an Old Testament person did and say, oh God, don't pour out your wrath on America. Oh God, spare it. Oh God, turn from your wrath. It's just like a slap in the face of Jesus that you didn't do enough. I've got to add to it. The reason Abraham and Moses could intercede that way is because Jesus hadn't come and the war wasn't over and God's wrath was on people and they were a mediator. But now there's only one mediator. And for a person to pray the way that most New Testament intercessors pray, binding and begging God to pour, not pour out his wrath and have mercy, it's antichrist. It's against what Jesus has done. I nearly preached on that, (laughs) but you ought to get that teaching on prayer to find out, man, there's a difference in the new Testament. Jesus has already done everything and he still flows through people, but it's more like father, this person over here is not responding to you and you won't force yourself on people. You've got to have an invitation. So I just stand in the gap and say, in the name of Jesus, you already love them. And I just release this love towards them. You bind the devil and rebuke the devil and resist him and he flees. But you don't beg God to do things. I have people come to me all the time and say, I've been praying for my husband for 20 years and God hadn't answered my prayers. Would you please pray? And maybe God will answer your prayer. 
And I tell people, no, I won't pray like that. And I have people say all the time, well, you wouldn't pray for You're implying that it's up to God whether your husband gets saved. And if you'd just pray enough and if you'd pray right, then God would make that person get saved. I said, that is wrong, 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 wrong. God has already done everything that he can do to get that person saved. He's already provided for him. He already loves them more than you love them. And you're implying that somehow or another, you aren't the prayer warrior you should be. And maybe God would answer my prayers because, but he wouldn't answer yours. You're saying it's all God that's at fault. God's not the one that's keeping people from being saved. You don't have to plead with God to get people saved. He wants them saved more than you want them saved. That kind of prayer is useless. I just pulled the rug out from under so many of you. It's like, like, but I tell you what, let me, let me just present it to you this way. How's your prayers working? How's it begging and pleading God and asking God to do all these things working? Not working very well for most people. So if it's not working, how come you fight so hard to defend something that's not working? You need to find a better way to pray. You need to find out what the New Testament, what Jesus has done and how a New Testament intercessor stands. You'd get better results. You ought to get that teaching on prayer. That would fit perfectly with what we've talked about. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Or you should be close if you were over there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I've been talking about from Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 that when God said that there was a new covenant, he made the old covenant old and now that which is old is ready to vanish away. We are under a new covenant. And then John 13, 34 said, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. So we got a new covenant and a new commandment. And when he said that there is a new commandment, he made the old commandments old and they're ready to vanish away. You are not supposed to be living your life by the 10 commandments. And if you missed any of this, uh, that may sound like heresy. I've, I've said, there's nothing wrong with the 10 commandments. We just got something even better this new commandment. And I've already dealt with that. Please get the CDs or the DVDs before you choke on what I just said. But look here in first Timothy chapter one, he says in verse five, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. There's two ways you can look at this. The end of the commandment, you could say the goal or the ultimate of the commandment is charity, God's kind of love out of a pure heart and a faith unfeigned. You could also say that the end of the Old Testament commandments is this New Testament commandment that Jesus talked about in John chapter 13, verse 34, about loving other people as Christ has loved us. And it says in verse six, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. In the King James, this is really terminology that we don't use today, but this is just saying some people have left preaching on the love and the goodness and the mercy of God. And they have turned aside unto vain jangling just means stuff that is useless. It's like fables. And again, I'm saying this in love. We've got some pastors here today and I'm for the church and I'm for churches that are preaching the true gospel. I am not anti-church, but I am anti-religion. And there is a tremendous amount of our churches today that aren't preaching the, real, the true word of God. And they have just turned aside unto useless talk. That's what vain jangling means. They're just preaching things. Many of you go to churches that you've gone there for years. And you still don't know the new covenant. You don't understand the goodness, the love of God. You know, I have to refrain myself when I'm talking to people because they come to me and they start telling me about, and I just know that they, they wouldn't understand the things that are in the word of God. They just have no recollection of it. And yet they go to churches every week and don't know any of this stuff. And I just have to refrain myself from saying, forget it. It's not going to work. But I tell you, it's important that you hear the true word of God. And many of us are going to dead, dead churches. I heard about a guy that died in church one time. They called 911 and they took out half the congregation before they found the dead person. 
mean, it was dead. And so in verse seven, these people who just turned aside and they're preaching things other than the word of God, it says they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Boy, that is a powerful statement. People who are preaching the law, you've got to live holy. They don't understand what they're saying. They define holy as you got to go to church. You got to wear your hair a certain way. Your dress got to be a certain length. You can't wear jewelry. And they do all of this clothesline preaching where it's all about the way you dress and stuff like that. And, you know, they'll use a scripture about don't let it be the outward man, the plaiting of the hair, the wearing of gold and putting on of apparel. You can't put your hair up in an, in fancy ways. You can't wear gold and jewelry and all of these things. But if they were going to be honest, the rest of that verse says, or putting on of apparel. If you're going to say that you can't do those things, then you can't wear clothes either. That's out of first Peter chapter three. It's amazing how people just pick and choose and they just do this stuff about you got to be drab looking. I've actually known women before that had rosy cheeks, but instead of looking like you had rosy cheeks, they make you put on powder so that you look bland. Man, I just say, if your barn needs painting, paint it. If it needs two coats, give it two coats. Amen. who are preaching the law, they don't know what they're saying because if you were to, if you were to truly say, all right, you got to be holy before God can move in your life. Where do you draw the line? Well, they usually draw it around their denomination and say, you got to do this and this and this. But I mean, where do you stop? God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not like, you know, nobody's going to be perfect, but you got to be the best you can. No, you either got to be perfect or you need someone who was perfect, Jesus. And you put faith in him. When people are preaching the law that you got to be holy, they don't, they don't live perfect themselves. And yet they're preaching perfection. It's hypocritical. I've had people come to me before and, you know, criticize me and stuff. And I say, so are you perfect? Do you do everything? Right? Well, no, I'm not, but I do this and I'm better than this person. See, they immediately have to start comparing themselves with other people. The only way you're ever going to look holy is to compare yourself to me or to somebody else. But when you stack yourself up against Jesus, you're going to come up short every single time. And so people who are preaching that you got to be holy or God won't answer your prayer and won't move. They don't understand what they're saying. They're preaching. They're digging a hole. They're digging their own grave because they aren't perfect themselves and they will come under their own judgment, whosoever they be. That's what the scripture says. And so it says here that they desire to be teachers of the law and they don't understand neither they don't understand neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. There is a right use of the law. The law is good if you will use it for what it's intended for. What's bad is when you use the law for something it was never intended for. Here's what the law was intended for in verse 7. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and for uh, sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers or fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for manstealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul is saying that there is a purpose of the law. Who's the law made for? An unrighteous man who's righteous. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says he made him, God, the father made him Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians four twenty four put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. If you have been born again, you are a righteous man or woman. And the law isn't made for you. The law is made for people that don't know God who are 
thinking that they somehow or another are better than this person over here and that they're going to get into heaven based on their own goodness. The law is given to show you your sin and to take away your self-deception that you could ever earn God's favor so that you would quit trusting in yourself and you'd say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the purpose of the law. And if you use the law to show somebody how sorry they are, then that's the right purpose before you get born again. But once you're born again, God doesn't want you to know how sorry you are. And he doesn't want you to be focused on all of your sin. The law isn't made for a righteous person. It's not made for a born again person. You know, I had a situation uh, in Houston, Texas. This has been 30 years, 40 years ago. And I was holding a meeting. There was two or 300 people and it was in a hotel um, room. So people in the hotel were walking by and there was a guy who walked by the back doors, listened for a little bit. And then he came in and uh, sat down and listened to me preach. And in the middle of my preaching, he just stood up and began to counter everything and yell at me. And I tried to answer his questions and the guy was incoherent. He wouldn't respond to what I was saying. So finally, I just took my authority and I said, I command you to sit down and shut up in the name of Jesus. And this guy just sat right down. And I went ahead and finished the service. And then after the service was over, I went and got him, brought him down front. And I was talking to him and I was telling him about the goodness of God. And I said, brother, God can set you free. He was high on something. I don't know if he was drunk or dope. I, I never, I don't know how to tell the difference. I never got into that stuff. So anyway, but I could just tell he was just not all there. He was something else. And I was telling him about the love of God and about how God loved him and how God could change him. And this guy just looked at me and he says, I am God. He says, I don't need God. My life's perfect. I don't need anything. And you know what? I don't know exactly where he was coming from, but I just know that where he was was wrong. And I knew that he didn't know God. So you know what? I switched from telling him about how much God loved him and how God could help him to I started taking the word of God like a sword. And I just beat this guy to a pulp. I said, you sorry thing. You think that you're God. And I just took scriptures and I beat him to a pulp and showed him his sin and showed him how ungodly he was. And someday he was going to stand before God and have to give an account for all of this stuff that he was saying. And within moments, I had this guy in tears just crying, oh God, have mercy on me. That's what the law is used for. It's for a person who thinks that they don't need God that they're okay on their own. That's why God gave the law was to knock you flat of your face so that you would quit being self-righteous and saying that surely God owes it to me because man, I go to church and I pay my tithes and I do this and this and this. And now God's got to move in my life. For you self-righteous, non-born again people, that's what the law is given for, to take away your smugness and your self-righteousness. But once you get born again, the law has served its purpose. And the law, if you start using it, then you are like he's talking about right here. You aren't understanding what you say. The law was never given to bring you into relationship with God. The law can't change you. The law can't save you. Keeping the commandments and doing these things will never change your life. It won't give you the love of God. All the law will do is show you how sinful you were and how ungodly you are and how you need God. But it is impotent to provide the change. Only the gospel can do that. The gospel is the only power that can change a person's life. And the reason we have so much religion in this nation and it is so pervasive and it hasn't changed our nation is because it hasn't been the gospel. It's been the law, just telling people how ungodly they are. And after a while, people get tired of being told how ungodly they are and they resent it and they're mad and they're preaching against religion, but they aren't against God. They may not know it, but God is good. Man, God is the best thing that ever happened to the world. And the Lord loves us. And if we were to preach the true gospel and tell people about the goodness of God, there's a place to tell people that, hey, you're going to hell. But it's not all of the time. And that's not the gospel. That's not the power of God. We've got to get to telling them about even though you deserve to go to hell, man, Jesus took your place. Jesus suffered for you and God isn't mad at you. He's not even in a bad mood. 
God's not even ticked off. God's not upset. God loves you in spite of what you've done. You go to preaching the goodness of God. It's the power of God and it'll turn men towards the Lord. Look over here in first Corinthians chapter 15. And I just want to start taking some scriptures here. I know some of those things that I've just said are really, really radical. And some of you say, this just can't be so. How could you say things like this? I want to show you a number of scriptures in the New Testament that show you what the purpose of the Old Testament law was. It was not something God gave that was good and that was helpful and it's going to make you so much better. And God wanted to help you with this law. The law was given to kill you and to condemn you. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 55, this is a familiar passage of scripture. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. What a radical statement. If people would think about this, maybe they'd change their opinion about trying to live under the law and conform to all of these things. The strength of sin is the law. Why would God give something that would strengthen sin? The law didn't strengthen you in your battle against sin. It strengthened sin in its battle against you. Why would God give something that strengthens sin? It's because sin had already beaten us and yet we didn't know it. You know, the scripture says, uh, is it first Corinthians chapter 10? If it is, I can find this real quick. It's either first or second Corinthians 10, but it says um, that they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. That must be second Corinthians 10. But this is what people do. They constantly compare themselves. You know, uh, in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, Cain killed his brother Abel. And instead of God judging him, God put a mark on him and says, if anybody tries to punish Cain for what he's done, I'll avenge his death sevenfold. God gave mercy to the first murderer on the face of the earth. Now, after the law came, see, that was before the law, but after the law came, the first person who broke the law was a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath day so that he could make a fire and cook something. And when he broke that commandment about doing work, uh, Moses put him in prison, put him, locked him up, shut him up until he could hear the voice of the Lord. And God said, stone him to death, show him no mercy. The first person who broke the law was a man who picked up sticks to make a fire and cook something. And they said, kill him. The first person who sinned after the fall of Adam and Eve was a man who killed his brother and God gave him mercy and protected him. Can you tell that there's a difference between when the law was in effect and when the grace and the mercy of God was in effect? God didn't approve of what Cain did, but he extended mercy to him and even protection towards him. But in that same chapter in Genesis chapter four, Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech comes along and Lamech tells his two wives, he's the first person in history that ever had more than one wife. And he tells his two wives, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged 70 and fold because he killed a man in self-defense. And so he compared himself and says, Cain got by with murder. I can get by with murder because mine was more justified than his. See, this is what people do. They compare themselves. And because somebody over here wasn't struck dead by lightning and God didn't bring some judgment on them, people begin to think, well, murder's not so bad. Cain killed a person. Lamech killed a person. Other people killed people. Lamech has two wives. I could have 10 wives. And after a while, they just get to comparing themselves. And, and you know, basically anything goes. Man, this is alive and well in our society. Did you know 50 years ago, homosexuality, they still had homosexuals, but nobody bragged about it. Nobody had a parade. (laughs) They didn't have gay pride. I mean, it was something that was going on, but people were ashamed of it. Now they've compared themselves and you have a rock movie star and you have a rock star and you have a politician. And after a while, this person didn't die and everybody just, you know, everybody's comparing themselves. And because this happened, you know, and because this happens, well, then it's okay for me to do this. And now basically just about anything goes. 
They're still doing the same thing. How did God stop that? He gave the law that, you know, people were thinking, they were just leaning under their own understanding and thinking, I think it's okay. I don't, I don't believe there's anything wrong with this. God says, you think you're okay. You think that the way you're living is all right. You think that you can still have a relationship with me by rejecting every standard that I give. Let me show you what right and wrong is. And he says, thou shalt not. And he's, he gave a command and all of a sudden people go, whoa, if this is what God demands, I'm in big trouble. But you know what it did? It actually strengthened sin. Now, this is something that you may have to think about just a second. But if, if you will think back, all of you understand this. You know, if you're trying, when you were a little kid, I remember trying to get people to do things, other kids, you know, to walk across a log across a creek and you knew they were going to slip and fall into the creek. And you'd sit there and say, you can't do it. You just can't do it. You're a sissy. Or in Texas, we'd say, I double dog dare you. And when you double dog dare somebody, you couldn't get out of that. But you know, basically you just tell somebody you can't do it. Thou shalt not do it. And there's something on the inside of every person that when somebody tells you, you can't do it, bless God, you'll do it to your own hurt. You'll do it knowing that you probably shouldn't do it, but you've been dared to do it. You've been told you can't do it and you just something rises up. It's this old carnal nature that nobody's going to tell me I can't do something. If you want to get a person to do something, just tell them you can't do it. And I'll, they'll hurt themselves trying to do it. <laughs> you know, I was in a race one time, a 6K race, and I had already turned in a personal best. I had pushed myself to where I was worn out. And I was a quarter of a mile from the finish line and I was just, I was just barely making it to the end. And a guy started to pass me just right at the end. And he, he tried to pass me. And when he did, I tried to keep up with him. I'm a competitor. My dad taught me that second place is first loser. And I have never come in second on purpose in my life. I'm not a bad loser, but but I never have thrown a game. And so anyway, this guy started to pass me and I tried to keep up with him and I just couldn't do it. So he got a few steps in front of me and he looked over his shoulder and he real sarcastic. He says, you could do better than that. And when he said that, it's just like this incredible Hulk just... (laughs) man, I, I mean, my adrenaline kicked in and I passed that guy like he was in reverse. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but it's just real. You could do better than that. And bless God. I mean, something came up on the inside of me and I passed him and I collapsed at the finish line. <laughs> but there's just something inside of you that when somebody tells you, you can't do it, there's something that rises up and says, bless God, I will. So for those people who thought that, you know what, I've overcome my selfishness. I've quit. I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. I'm now a really, really good person and God's got to accept me and I've overcome my sin nature and I don't need God like some of these people who are drug addicts or alcoholics or prostitutes. I'm a really good person. God says, you think you're all right, thou shalt not. And all of a sudden sin rose up. It strength, the command strengthens sin. It will draw people to sin. This is counter what most people think. Most people think that the law keeps you from sinning. The law will cause you to lust. You know, if for some reason you didn't like chocolate, I don't know how you live if you don't like chocolate. <laughs> But let's just say that you don't even like chocolate. If I was to dangle a million dollars in front of you and say, I'm going to deposit a million dollars over here. And if you can go one year without chocolate, you can have this million dollars. Even if you didn't like chocolate, you would start being tempted for it just because you've been told that you couldn't have it. And there's this goal. And if I was like God so that I could actually see your heart, not just your actions, but your heart, even if you'd never liked chocolate before, you'd go to wondering about, wonder what chocolate tastes like. I guarantee you, if I gave you a prize and said, thou shalt not eat chocolate for one year, you would go to lusting for chocolate. It's just human nature and God knew this. And so for those who were already thinking that I'm such a good person, I'm not like other people. 
God's going to accept me just based on my own merit. God says, you think you're good? Thou shalt not. And he started giving all of these laws that made lust come alive in your heart. It made you actually lust. It says that over in Romans chapter seven, I'm trying to do this in sequence, but we'll get over there hopefully this morning. And it says that, that lust and concupiscence came through the law. When you go to pre, if you go to preaching, you shall not commit adultery. If you dare think about adultery, God's mad at you. God will not love you. God's going to judge you. God's going to get you. And if you preach against adultery every week, you will have a rash of adultery in your church. People can't understand that, but that's absolutely true. I had a preacher one time who was listening to me preach on this and he was getting it. The Holy Spirit was bearing witness and he, he was in his study and he looked out and he had his young son in the backyard pray, playing with a bunch of neighborhood kids. And he thought, I'm just going to go check this out. And so he called them all to the back door and he got them on the patio and he says, you kids are doing great. You're just playing good. Everything's been great. They'd been out there for an hour. And he says, you're doing just fine, but whatever you do, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And then he went back in the house and he looked out his window and he said, half of those kids walked right over and spit on that flower. And the other half stood there with their mouth drooling, just, you know, wishing that they were bold enough to spit on it, but they hadn't even noticed that that flower existed until somebody says, thou shalt not. And immediately they had a desire to do what they were commanded not to do. It's amazing how people miss this. They think preaching the law is going to keep people from living in sin. Let me ask you how that's working. (laughs) People will criticize me and say, you're giving people a license to sin. I say, they're doing pretty good without a license. Amen. (laughs) This legalism in law, has it made our people holy? And is it made them I guarantee you there are people that are out committing sin and even the ones that aren't doing it. I was one of those that was raised under condemnation. I never have done those things, but I guarantee you I had lust in my heart. I felt so guilty. I would see profanity scribbled on a bathroom stall and I'd spend a week repenting because I read what somebody else wrote. (laughs) Some of you think, boy, you were messed up. That's what the law will do to you. I thought somehow or another I was defiled by just having the thought come through my brain, having the seeing somebody, what somebody else had scribbled. I can tell you, I didn't go out and do all of those things, but I was probably more condemned than many of you who went out and committed sexual acts, got drunk, smoked, lied, stole. I was more guilt ridden than most people who did those things because I was living under the law and just having a thought about it, even having a desire for it, I would be so condemned. The law strengthened sin. It didn't strengthen you. It strengthened sin. It's like sin had already beat you and you didn't know it. So God just gave something that made sin even stronger so that man, you couldn't miss it that sin had beat you and that you needed a savior. That's the purpose of the law. It wasn't to set you free. It was to bind you. Second Corinthians chapter three. And in verse six, it says, who also hath made us able ministers of the new Testament, the new covenant, not of the letter. That's the old covenant, but of the spirit for the letter kills the old Testament law kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious, what's that talking about? Some people will sit there and say, when you're preaching against the law, you're making a mistake. You're talking about the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled and passed away. We don't keep the feast days. We don't keep the dress codes. We don't go by the dietary laws, but we still have to live by the 10 commandments. This says, if the ministration of the law written in engraven in stones, the only part of the old Testament law that was written in engraven in stones is the 10 commandments. This is talking about the 10 commandments, not some ceremonial law. This is talking about the heart of the old Testament law, the 10 commandments, and it calls it a ministration of death. In the New Testament, Jesus came to give us life and that we might have life more abundantly. uh, John chapter 10, verse 10, and so many other scriptures. 
Life is associated with the new covenant. The old covenant was a ministry, a ministration of death. It brought death. And it was written and engraven in stones. If that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. The 10 commandments, the old covenant law was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, again, this is talking about the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law brought condemnation. It brought death. It brought condemnation. And Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit in the new covenant, the ministry, the new covenant, the law of God has no condemnation with it. If you are condemned, it's because you are under the law. It is a ministration of condemnation. And if it was glorious, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious, talking about the Old Testament law, had no glory in this respect or in comparison to the glory that excels. And you know, people down here, they go on and read this and they say that we are changed from glory unto glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And they talk that this is changed, talking about that we're changed step by step, little by little, we become more and more and more like God. Actually, in your spirit, you get identical to God at salvation. Your spirit's not growing. Your spirit's perfect and complete. And when it says that we are changed from glory unto glory, it's talking about the glory of the Old Testament law to the glory of the New Testament. It's not talking about you changed little by little and all this. It says that we've left the glory of the Old Testament and now have come into the glory of the New Testament and it's all in the face of the Lord Jesus. So I've used three scriptures right here or much more than that, but three main points that the law strengthened sin. The law was a ministration of death. The law was a ministration of condemnation. Those things had a purpose to knock you flat of your face and to take away your self-centeredness and your self-salvation, your self-righteousness. But they weren't positive beyond that. That doesn't build you up and give you a relationship with God. And most Christians are living under the Old Testament law. And because of it, sin is strong in their life. They're condemned. They feel death. They're just depression and discouragement because that's what the Old Testament law does. And this is what the vast majority of Christianity today is doing is preaching this Old Testament law. Look over in Romans chapter three. Here's some more statements about the law. In Romans chapter three, in verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Before I go any further, let me just stop and say this, that the law wasn't given for everybody. The law wasn't intended for the Gentiles. The law was given to the Jews. What the law does, the law puts fear in you. And just like in my case, I was raised under the law. I didn't do many of the things that some of you did. I didn't go out and have the same sins, but on the inside, I guarantee you, I was so condemned. I was so guilty. I used to have a dream. I mean, at least once or twice a year for a decade when I was a little kid that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught and the police turned me over to my mother, which was worse than the police. And then I went to hell and I was burning in hell because I had smoked a cigarette. And some of you think that's weird. That's what the law will do to you. I was so fearful that if I ever smoked a cigarette, I'd go directly to hell. I was raised under terrible legalism. We didn't dance because that was ungodly. One time, one time in my life, when I was in junior high, I skipped a Wednesday night church service to go over to my girlfriend's house. And when I got there, it turned out that other couples were over there and they were dancing and they tried to teach me how to dance. And I tried and I got so smitten and so convicted. I called my brother. He came and picked me up. And as I I was at church before the service was over, (laughs) I didn't even miss a full service. I never missed a church service in my life. I was there at least three, sometimes five times a week. I was always there. 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy my brother cigarettes. He smoked and I wouldn't buy him cigarettes because I was afraid I'd go to hell if I helped him smoke. Some of you think you were really messed up. I was, and that's religion. That's what religion does for you. We wouldn't go mixed bathing is what the Baptist called it. Swimming where boys and girls are in the same swimming pool. And call it mixed bathing made it sound more ungodly than mixed swimming. And so we called it mixed bathing and I couldn't go to a public place and swim in a public pool because that was ungodly. It was strict. I was strict. And you know what? The law was never intended for me. It was given to the Jews to shut them up so that there could be a virgin left for Jesus to come into the earth through. But it was never intended for the Gentiles. Paul makes this statement in so many places. And yet today, the Gentile church is under the law and has been taught the law and it was never even intended for us. Religion has totally polluted and corrupted what God intended. We shouldn't have even had all of this sin consciousness. So in Romans chapter three, verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, not everybody's under the law or wasn't intended to be under the law. And here's the purpose of the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The purpose of the law is to shut your mouth, your self-justification, your excuses. And well, you don't understand. It was because I was raised in a dysfunctional family and because this and this and this. No, the law just shuts your mouth and takes away all of your excuses and makes you guilty before God. So the law strengthens sin. The law's administration of death. It's administration of condemnation. It shuts your mouth. It makes you guilty. Isn't that awesome? How many of you love the law yet? All of these things are necessary for a person to come to the end of themselves, but it's not something that Christians should be living under. It wasn't given. You know, there's a reason that the Lord waited 2000 years after the fall of Adam before he gave the law because it wasn't his best. And over in Galatians chapter three, it says it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promises were made. Talking about Jesus. The law was not God's original plan. It was added because sin was growing and multiplying at such a uh, astronomical rate that if God hadn't have done something to restrain sin, there literally wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have come into this earth through. That's not an exaggeration. It is absolutely true. And so God had to do something to restrain sin. So he gave these laws that killed that condemned, that made sin come alive, that made you guilty and did all of these things. And it's, and it literally scared the devil out of people. They quit committing as much sin, but the sin they had committed dominated them and bothered them and made them guilty and more condemned than people that didn't have the law. But God had to do it to restrain the amount of sin until Jesus should come. But then it says in Galatians chapter three, that the law was like a schoolmaster that brought us unto Christ. But now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. The law has fulfilled its purpose. It made us guilty. It showed us that we needed God. And now we relate to God, not based on keeping commands and rituals and doing these things, but it's just about accepting Jesus and loving God. And you aren't supposed to be living under the law anymore. That's awesome. So the law made you guilty. In verse 20, it says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't given to give you justification. Justification is a religious term. It literally means to declare free from the guilt and penalty attached to sin. But my little simple definition of justification is just as if I'd never sinned. I'm just as if I'd never sinned justified. And that's what it means. And the law didn't make you just as if you'd never sinned. Instead, the law gave you the knowledge of sin. It made you guilty. It focused your attention on everything wrong on the inside of you. The law is what's at the root of all of negativeness where you just nitpick and constantly see nothing but the bad. 
I could spend an hour right here showing you that this is why some of you are so negative and so critical of yourself. It's because you, you've got a law mentality. You were taught that under the law. That's the purpose of the law is to focus on sin, to amplify sin and to make sin bigger to where it just literally makes you so miserable and sick of yourself. And that's where a lot of you live. And it's the law that made you that way. And God never intended for that. Goes on to say in the next verse, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Righteousness is right standing with God and you can now get it without the law. It is not you fulfilling the law and then you become righteous. The law, all the law does is strengthen sin, condemns you, kills you, makes you guilty, shows you your need, focuses on sin, but it can't save you. It can't justify you. And now you can get justified in right standing with God through grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not by your keeping of the law. And he just keeps saying this over and over and over. This is what the book of Romans, if you get that book about the first eight, nine chapters of the book of Romans, man, this would change your life to understand these things. Look over in Romans chapter seven. Let me share some verses with you. In verse six, he says, for now we are delivered from the law. What part of delivered from the law do you not understand? Why would we want to still be living under the law when the Bible says we got a new covenant and a new commandment and it's old and it's ready to vanish away and it killed and it did all of these things. And now we are delivered from the law and yet people are still fighting to say, no, I've got to still live under all of these rituals and all of these commands. Now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, some people might think because I've been saying that the law has been passed over and we've got a new covenant and it's ready to vanish away and all of these things. Some people think I'm against the law. I'm not against the law if you use it lawfully, like those scriptures we started with in 1 Timothy Chapter one, verse five, there is a right use of the law to show a person their need for God. If you use the law for that person to beat a person up and to bring them to the end of their self-righteousness, fine, have at it. But what I'm against is Christians trying to relate to God by keeping the law. God never did give the law so that you could keep it, but he gave it to strengthen sin, to kill you, to condemn you, to show you your need, to make you guilty, to shut your mouth. He didn't give the law for you to live by. It wasn't for you to keep. You can't keep it. Some of you think, well, I can keep it. I'm doing pretty good. You hadn't studied the law. Did you know in Leviticus chapter 22, it talks about the, to a priest, the qualifications for a priest. And in the New Testament, in Peter, it says that we are all kings and priests unto the Lord. So if you are going to be a New Testament saint, you're going to have to conform to the laws of the priesthood. And you know what they were? You couldn't be stoop-shouldered. You had to have perfect posture. You couldn't have glasses. If your eyesight was dim, you couldn't be a priest. If you had a mole on your body, you couldn't be a priest. If you were left-handed, you can't be a priest. Somebody over here was left-handed. <laughs> now, why did God say things like that? Is it because he hates people with moles on your body? Do you have to go burn all the moles off your body to try and become perfect? No, but the Lord is saying, look, if you think that you're perfect, if you think that you don't need Jesus to be your high priest and you can be a priest yourself, let me show you what what perfection is. God didn't create us with moles. Moles are imperfections. And if you've got a mole, you're imperfect. God doesn't want you to burn your moles off. He loves you the way you are. But if you're going to trust in your own goodness, moles aren't perfect. Stooped shoulders, not perfect. Poor eyesight's not perfect. Left-handed's not perfect. Flat feet was another qualification. If you're flat-footed, you couldn't be a priest. 
Why did God say these things? So that everybody could go and get surgery to remove things and do this? No, he's just trying to say, if you think you're perfect, here's my standard of perfect. And the purpose was to make you say, oh God, I'm not like that. And he says, I know, but I love you. Just accept it as a gift instead of thinking you have to earn it. That's what the purpose of the law was. Man, those are awesome statements. No, the law isn't sin. He says in verse eight, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for the concupiscence means uncontrolled, unrestrained lust, excessive lust. The law actually caused concupiscence, lust to rise up. It wrought in me by the commandment. You preach the law, people will go living in more sin. You say, thou shalt not, and they'll say, bless God, I shall. There you go. But sin taken occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for without the law, sin was dead for I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Every person, a little baby has a sin nature. They are born with a sin nature. It's not held against them until they reach an age where they willfully embrace it and cooperate with it and start living in sin. If a child was to die, they go directly into the presence of the Lord. I can give you many scriptures on that. But there is this sin nature, but it's not alive. It's not held against us until the law comes and then sin revives and we die. And after that time, if we were to go out and willfully sin, we go directly to hell once you cross that barrier. But notice that it says that all of this happened through the power of the law and the commandment, which was ordained unto life, I found to be unto death for sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. The law itself wasn't dead, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. That was the purpose of the law was to show you how exceedingly sinful you were. It magnified, it amplified your sin so that you would get rid of any deception that God owed you something that God loved you because you were lovely. The law, the purpose of the law is to let you know that, you know what? It's not because you deserve it. It's because God is love, not because you're lovely. And it was to take all that deception away. And if you use the law to take away self-righteousness and this attitude that God owes me something, well, then the law still has a purpose today to whittle a person down to size, to take them out of that self-righteousness And there is a purpose for the law, but it was never intended for the Christian to live by the law and for you to focus on sin and let sin come alive. We've got a new covenant and we've got a new commandment that is just love others as Christ has loved us. And that fulfills the law. Romans chapter 13, verse eight through 12. It just changes everything. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we have made ourselves guilty. There are many people in here that you just constantly pick yourself apart. You're so hard on yourself. You know, a common comment that I have, people come up and they say, I pray for others and I see them healed. I help others. And yet I can't get healed. And yet I can't. I'm just, why aren't things working for me? And most of the time I'll tell them it's because you love others. You're merciful to them, but you are tough on yourself. You know every little flaw in you and you magnify it and you are just tough on yourself. You will give others mercy, but you don't give yourself mercy. You know why? Because you're a legalist. You're under the law. The law has made you, you just constantly are aware of things. Like that song Charlie was singing today, stand before God without a conscious thought of sin. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse two, the last part of it. We should have no more conscience of sin. This is the benefit of the New Testament. And yet that sounds like blasphemy to the average Christian. That I would come before God and not mention all my sins and not say everything, how terrible I am. And oh God, we're just such an ungodly sinner. 
Most of us have been taught to come in mentioning all of your sins. When the Bible says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, be thankful unto him and bless his name. We're supposed to come in praising him, how awesome he is to love somebody as sorry as me. Instead of coming in and talking about how sorry we are, we should come in talking about how awesome he is to love somebody as sorry as me. I heard Kenneth Copeland one time say, if you feel like a gnat on the back of an elephant, instead of talking about your smallness, talk about how awesome that elephant is. <laughs> instead of coming in, oh God, I failed you and I'm so sorry. And God, how could you love me? And do that, come in and Father, thank you that you love me, that you carry my picture in your wallet, that you love me, that you got an eight by 10 of me on your mantle, that you... Thank you, Father, for what you've done. Thank you for loving somebody like me. But we magnify our sin. You know why? Because that's what the law does. The law gives you knowledge of sin. The gospel gives you knowledge of salvation. It tells you about your Savior and how awesome your Savior is and how wonderful He is to have died for you. The law will not tell you anything good. You could do 99 things out of 100 right and the law will focus on the one thing that's wrong and make you feel guilty and condemned and show you that you weren't perfect. The law amplifies the slightest little imperfection in you, whereas the gospel will tell you about the good things. It'll make you focus on the good. I tell you, brothers and sisters, we got something better than the Old Testament law. It was a ministration of death, a ministration of condemnation, and we've got something much, much better. And praise God, I don't want to have to wait until we get to heaven to find out what we had. I want to find out now and begin to experience it right now. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Father, for delivering us from this law. Thank you that Jesus took these commandments that were contrary to us and you nailed them to your cross and you bore the wrath of the law so that we would never have to bear it. Father, we thank you for that and we just receive this revelation. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand and receive this revelation of your goodness. Father, for those of us that we've been raised under the law, Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to help us get out from under this. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we believe that you help renew our minds, that we start taking advantage of the great things that Jesus did for us and that we no longer live as an Old Testament saint. Father, that no one in here would try and intercede the way that Moses and Abraham did and David did. But Father, we would let Jesus be the mediator. We would stand in what he's already done and receive all of these benefits. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just thank you that the revelation of the Holy Spirit is flowing in here. That this is setting people free, that they recognize it's not the Holy Spirit that's been condemning them. It's the law that's been condemning them and that they would turn from that and that they would receive the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Father, we just agree and we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Brothers and sisters, I think this is going to change people's lives. If you've missed any of these sessions, I encourage you to please get all of the sessions and put them together and go back over it and listen to this. Some of you think, you know, that you can just hear it and get it. It's taken me 44 years. The 23rd of March has been 44 years. I've been meditating on this and I'm trying to condense 44 years worth of study and seeking the Lord into five sessions. And I tell you, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. You need to get this and meditate on it and go over and over and over and over it in order to be able to get it. And you don't have to just get my stuff. There's other people, but there's not very many people. I can recommend about a dozen people right now that are really preaching strong, the grace of God. And there's just not a lot. So, but I can guarantee you that what I'm sharing with you is the truth and it'll set you free. And so I encourage you to get those things and that they would be a blessing to you. If there's anybody here today who doesn't know Jesus, 
you need to be born again. Maybe you've been trying to earn your salvation by living holy. And today I just shot holes in your approach towards God. And you realize that you can't ever earn it. You need to come and receive salvation as a gift. And just receive it because of what Jesus did for you. Amen. And if you are already born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we've now had how many? It was 200 and... 45? 45. I'm trying to get this English accent down here. 245 people have come forward to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Hallelujah. But you know, I know that there's new people here today that haven't been here before. And if you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, let me just put it to you this way. You cannot retain what I've said today without the Holy Spirit bringing it back to your remembrance. It says in John 14, 26, but when the comforter has come, which is the Holy Ghost, he will teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've spoken unto you. The Holy Spirit is how you understand this. This is contrary to our natural mind. In this carnal world, everything is based on performance. And yet what I'm saying is based on the performance of Jesus. And you receive things that you don't deserve. And it's not according to you keeping rituals and rules. And you just, this is contrary to the way we think. You can't retain this without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will bring these things to your remembrance and explain it to you. So if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, you need it. You don't need it to go to heaven. You can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit, but you are not going to really operate in the fullness of God and retain and understand unless you get the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. When I received the Holy Spirit, my whole understanding just changed. It was like, I mean, it just exploded on the inside of me. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't have that, one way you can tell is if you don't speak in tongues, you need to come and receive this. And I know that there's probably some people here saying, well, I don't believe you have to speak in tongues. I don't believe you have to speak in tongues either. You get to speak in tongues. It's a blessing. It's not something you have to do, but it is a gift from God. And why would anybody in here turn down a gift from God? Are you coming to receive? Man, you guys are ready. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Is there anybody else that would like to join them? Is there anybody here that needs to receive salvation and or the baptism of the Holy Spirit? If that's you, come forward and stand right here and we want to help you to receive. Thank you, Jesus. If you don't speak in tongues, you ought to be down here. Somebody says, well, I'm not sure anything will happen. Well, I'm sure nothing will happen if you don't come forward. I can't guarantee you that you're going to receive. God, I can guarantee you God wants to give you these gifts. But you have to learn to receive. But I can guarantee you that if you don't even take a step of faith, if you don't even believe God, if you don't try, nothing's going to happen. You need to come forward. You need to come and receive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't this awesome? Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Oh, this is just great. I tell you what, God loves you more than you could ever understand. And the Holy Spirit is sent to explain all of this to you, to come live on the inside of you. And it says in uh, Romans chapter 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. I tell you, the Holy Spirit, when I received the Holy Spirit, the love of God just overwhelmed me. I was literally overwhelmed with God's love. And I believe that this is going to happen to you. You know, we've got a meeting for our Bible college and they're already in the chapel now and they're going to be starting in five or 10 minutes. So what I'm going to do this morning, if you don't mind, 
I'm going to ask Robert to take you into this little room right there. And we've got ministers that are going to pray with you and help you to receive so that we can go ahead and release everybody to this second meeting that we've got. And I've got a book that I want to give every one of you. And this book will explain being born again and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I promise you, if you will read that book and cooperate, you can receive. Plus, we've got these prayer ministers that they will pray with you and help you. So if you would, I'd like to ask you to just follow Robert. He's standing right there in the aisle with his Bible up, waving it. And if you would follow him, it'll only take a minute. But we want to ask you to go over there and we want to help you to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. God bless y'all. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. If we've already had 245, this is another, I don't know, 40 or more, 50. Did you count? Oh, very good. So anyway, this is over 208. By tonight's service, we ought to have over 300 people that came forward to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus. I'd like to ask our prayer ministers, if they would, to come stand down here across the front. And again, just because of the meeting, I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning. Uh, We're going to let you go to this meeting, but we will be back tonight. Remember, it's at six tonight instead of at seven. And all of our prayer ministers are here that if anybody came and if you need a healing, if you need a deliverance, if you need help and you just want somebody to agree with you and help you to receive what God has already done for you. That's what they are here for is to pray for you. The rest of you, I'm going to, let's, let's do this. Let's ask those who want prayer first to start coming so that you can get out of the aisles before everybody starts leaving. But if you need prayer, just come forward right now and let someone agree with you and pray with you. The rest of you, I'm going to let you go. And remember that we have this Bible college meeting right now over here in the wedding chapel. And if you've ever had a desire to come to Bible college, please go check this out and just see if God could work this out for you to come. I guarantee you it'll change your life. So thanks for coming. God bless you. And we'll be back at 6 p.m. tonight. Make sure you get the CDs and the DVDs of this meeting. I tell you, you need to have these and be able to go back over it. God bless you. We'll see you tonight at 6 o'clock.